Remember the good old 1980s When things were so uncomplicated I wish I could go back there again And everything could be the same Oh, rock and roll, rock and roll. Oh, yeah, I remember, yeah. <laughs> um, what rock and roll means to me. You see, it means something very different on this side of the Atlantic, I think, than it does from your side, because I wouldn't consider myself, you know, a rock and roll artist at all. I don't know what kind of label I put on myself, really. No, I mean, rock and roll to me is, is you know, stadiums and dry ice and that kind of thing. Um, but there again, you know, I suppose the clash of rock and roll, really, and, and you know, they're, they're kind of my generation in a way. Well, Paul Simonon said, if that's rock and roll, I don't want it. <laughs> so, Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> Was he talking about Mick Jones by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> no, not that Mick Jones, that Mick Jones. <laughs> <laughs> This is 80s Odyssey. Science! With Thomas Dolby's 8010. The Thomas Dolby interview begins now. Number six prefabs out. Certain songs, you know, that we've done in the past, certain even full records like Steve McQueen, Thomas Dolby did almost everything to make them what they are. I wrote the songs and gave him very bare uh, um, skeletons of, 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 of the record, and he built it upwards. Whereas with Jordan, I was more... Um, more involved in the preparation, but still his, his Thomas Dolby's input is enormous. I liked Thomas Dolby because I thought he was so different to myself. And um, I was very impressed by him. He was very, he was very serious. And it was a revelation being in the studio. I'd never been in the studio with someone who uh, recorded things, little pieces of color. He'd use a piano for one section, then he'd use a cello line, then he'd have an acoustic guitar, and I thought, what is all this? This is just bits and pieces. 
And then it was only weeks and weeks later that I realized how he was building up a picture in layers. Whereas if I had been in the studio by myself, I would have had the piano start at the beginning of the song all the way through, the guitar starts at the beginning. So I, I learned, I learned a lot. So we have a very close relationship. He's, 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 he's wonderful. Up to number six now, Prefab Sprout. So we've covered Stephen McQueen in pretty exhaustive detail on the audio commentary, which is uh, one of my absolute favourite episodes and by far the most popular one we've ever done. So thank you for that. Oh, that's great. Well, I hope people will, will refer to that for the uh, the genesis of the... Yeah, exactly. I mean, people really, really love that album. It's something that's just, just has aged beautifully over the last 40 years. It's an interesting interview with you from 1984. He actually literally says a quote, I would never produce a band. Every now and then I, I find somebody interesting, you know, who I'd like to, to help out or contribute to what they're doing. But I mean, I'd, I'd never, I don't think I'd produce a band or anything like that. It's not really up my street. Do you remember doing that interview? No. I, what well, that's, that's, that's I remember all the context was, but I would never produce a band. And obviously that was the year that you produced Prefab Sprout. Obviously false news then. Okay. okay. Maybe it's a diversion tactic. Um, so one of the roles as a producer, which which you demonstrate brilliantly on Steve McQueen, this is the only thing I'll say about Steve McQueen, then we'll move on, is the choosing the material that you're going to work on. And that's a, a perfect example of that. But you're given a bunch of songs and you fashioned the album out of those songs. And by the way, you were right to reject Snowy Rents the Dogs. I've heard that song now, so you were correct to do that. <laughs> I hate to think what I'm do. With all the cliches coming true I'm scared to plan I'm scared to plan I'm scared to plan While I'm asleep And act it out like No street A loveless lonely Sometimes jog But poor old snowy Rants a dog Uh, so like this is a perfect because you picked the perfect collection of songs for that album were you conscious of that in your role as a producer not just the creating of sounds it's the collating of material as well yeah I mean I felt you know the the Sprouts as a band at that point brilliant stunning awe-inspiring and lacking in objectivity you know so I think what they needed really was somebody to boss them around a little bit and and so that's what I did you know And, and I think with you know with with the breadth and the wealth of songs that Paddy had written over the years, they needed a curator to come in and pluck out the gems and say, these should be your next album. stage was it arranged that you would do some of the tracks on the follow-up was it always the case that well you would definitely work on it when it's available or was it a case of there was a certain time where it's like okay we're doing this next album are you available and then you have to arrange the one and the how 
Yeah, I think quite early on they would have booked the studio and and sort of you know set aside that period for the recording of the album because yeah, if you're a manager, a record label, you map out the year, the calendar, you think about when they can tour, you think about the optimum times of year to release records. If you're trying to break a new act, then you you know you don't release anywhere near Christmas, bloody blast. So I think probably all of that would have been mapped out. But we, we went in the rehearsal room and we, we routined a number of different songs. There were probably a couple of others that didn't end up on the album. But uh, yeah, I would think we were given a lot of freedom and there's very little intervention from the record company. They would, Muff Woodman came down maybe once every two or three weeks and he'd listen to what we did, but he always loved it and was very supportive. That was it a case of you were only going to work on four tracks. It was a case of they played you the songs, Paddy played you the songs, and you just chose the tracks you wanted to work on that happened to be those four songs. Oh, sorry, you took it back from Landing Parts of Memphis. Yes, right? yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I missed. <clears throat> I missed that. Yeah. So, so by that time, uh, when they were ready to start work on from Langley Parts to Memphis, I was living in Los Angeles. I just met Kathleen. My career there was really taking off. I was getting into film work. I was more into the Hollywood thing. And um, I just, there's no way that I had time to do a whole album with them. So I think they came up with alternative ideas for producers that they worked with. And they said, look, whatever time you can set aside to work with on our stuff, the better. And, um, you know, the obvious choice really out of the demos that they played me was the king of rock and roll which was just unbelievably catchy i mean you know the first time i heard that chorus i just thought well it's a slam dunk really And then with the others, we sort of balanced them out with, you know, my favorite songs and ones that intrigued me to work on. You know, I love the others as well. Uh, Knock on Wood, especially, I think it's one of my best productions ever. Venus of the Soup Kitchen, uh, we got to work with a huge choir at Stevie Wonder's studio. And, um, you know, they were, they were church people and they, I think, resonated with the song and with Paddy. And um, yes, I mean, it's an enjoyable experience and I'm sad in some ways I didn't get to do the whole album. But I, I was happy also that things like, um, you know, The Golden Calf and Cars and Girls, you know, I would have done differently. Uh, the Golden Calf actually was, you know, I think at the time their most successful record in the USA and it really caught on on college radio and uh, helped break them through there. So like Cars and Girls, what have you done differently, do you think? Hmm. Very hard to say, actually. In in retrospect, you know, I think I probably would have routined it a little bit in the studio. I mean, it's a, it, it's a great song as it is. It's got a lot of irony to it. You know, it was in like the, the, the Bruce Springsteen era. It was all over the radio. And it was sort of, you know, Paddy's sort of reaction to that, you know, very masculine sort of approach to rock music. I don't think I would have done anything different. You know, I mean, I, I love the way it sounds anyway. And I think the album holds up. I think in many ways, three albums of The Sprouts and three albums of mine are very parallel. And that is, you know, The Flat Earth along with Steve McQueen 
and then Aliens Ate My Buick along with From Langley Park to Memphis, which are both more technicolor, more sort of uh, extroverted kind of sound. And then uh, Astronauts and Heretics with... Uh, Who in the comeback? With Jordan the comeback. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I'm a bit, bit slack about this. But yeah, if you take those those three pairs of albums, they had a lot of parallels to them in terms of where we were in our career and and the the tone of the albums. That's really interesting. I assume it's like a subconscious parallel. You wouldn't have necessarily thought it at the time. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, in retrospect, I think we were on sort of similar paths in, in our lives, in our careers, but I was certainly wasn't aware of it at the time. So the king of rock and roll, I'd assume as the producer, you would be thinking as you're making it, this will probably be the first single. It wasn't actually the first thing. It was Cars and Girls, but this will be like the potential hit. Or was that on your mind when you were recording it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, know, you, you never know, of course, but um, it felt felt like a natural, really. And is, is that a pressure or is that something that would excite you as a producer? Like, this could be real hit material? Or was it like, I, I can't screw this up because this is going to be the hit? You know, I mean, once again, it's the team. Some artists, I suppose, work in isolation and they just absolutely have blinkers on and they don't care about what managers and record labels and everybody says. Other artists, I think they feel that you are part of a team and it's going to be a collaborative effort if you're going to make a record successful. And that means that if your marketing people, your radio pluggers, etc., if they all get excited about something, you want to go with the flow. You want to get your arms around that excitement. And as a team, you move forward. You want every Monday morning, you want 30 people to get sit down at their desk and pick up their phone and start singing your praises and blowing your trumpet for you, you know, because artists are not very good at doing that themselves. I'm, I'm bad at doing that themselves myself. And, I, you know, I, I, want, I like the idea of a team of people that are all singing from the same hymn book. So as 10, 12 songs take shape, you start to get feedback from the team as to what they're keen about. And sometimes that changes, but you move forward with that. You know, you want everybody to be hopping up and down with excitement about it. I've always wanted to ask about um, King of Rock and Roll. There's that kind of, yep, 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 in the background. What, what is that? Sorry, what's in the background? It kind of, is it kind of, yep, 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 repetitive kind of sound? Oh, okay, okay. Um some random phonem from somebody's vocal sampled into the Fairlight, actually just a syllable from Paddy's vocal or Wendy's vocal, but I think probably Paddy's vocal. It was I mean, an accident you like the sound of, you thought, oh, good, is there like a background noise all the way through, or was it just something you were looking for and what can we use for that sound and then you found the vocal? I, I fiddle around with that, you know, it's like I've done other things that have me sort of go, you know, like I just sample bits and pieces and throw it behind. So you mentioned Knock On Wood, which is also a favourite of mine. This is the most kind of, Thomas Dolby-esque of all your prefab Sprite productions, I feel. Is that fair to say? I think that's probably fair to say, yeah. I mean, it's like I, I could have, you know, it doesn't sound like the band in terms of the way when Paddy and Mark and Neil were playing together in a room. You know, a, lo a lot of their songs sound very much like that. You know, Cars and Girls, The Golden Calf is the sound of the pub band Prefab Sprout. I think that Knock on Wood was very abstract. A lot of sounds of mine and i think in a way that was a precursor to uh the jordan the comeback where where you know there there were some band songs but there are a lot of songs that were really sort of you know my sounds and paddy and wendy's vocals
it's a gorgeous record. I absolutely love that. And also, I remember that, which is, which is like kind of deeply romantic track. Yeah, and amazing. I mean, you know, Paddy, at the time, I thought of as a sort of a 75-year-old wrapped in a 32-year-old body. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he's he's deeply romantic and sentimental at heart and could have been rocking in a chair with a blanket over his legs when he sang that. See, I remember that. Venus of the Soup Kitchen, any memories of recording that one? Yes, I mean, we, we um, like I said, we, we recorded that at Stevie Wonder's studio in LA. And um, I'm not sure if Steve was around for that, but he 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 liked the band very much. Um, and, he, and he played harmonica for them on, on, on a later song. Yeah, the Andre Crouch Choir. And I remember there were about 30 of them, but they would work out their harmonies with just four or five principles. So Paddy sat at a grand piano and there were four or five of them huddled around the grand piano. They just sort of made eye contact and they just intuitively figured out the harmonies and then they would take them back to the choir as a whole and sort of pass them on. And it was a great thing. I remember Andre saying, listening to Paddy play and sing and he said, you a church boy and Paddy went yeah kind of <laughs> is it easy to record a choir is there a special trick to it to record a choir yeah well I mean if it's a great sounding choir you set up a couple of mics in stereo and you just you know it's about the performance it's, you know it comes across on on a record or it doesn't you have to ask a sound engineer about sort of you know miking techniques and so on but um, I was just focused on the performance you recorded Jordan the Comeback which is my favourite pre Sprat album I think it's an absolute masterpiece um, yeah. what would you say is the best pre Sprat album uh, you know again I go back to these parallels with 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 my three albums I mean interestingly I, I'd say that 
that probably in the balance, Steve McQueen is the best album start to finish because it just worked. I think on Jordan the Comeback, we were trying very hard. The bar was set very high. You know, Paddy's a great reader and I often think of it as a literary work. You know, it's like, it's like James Joyce or something. I mean, it's just, it has very lofty goals. And the funny thing was I, I hadn't seen them for a couple of years and I was in London and we were in Camden Town and we went and sat in a cafe. And um, I think at least two of them had terrible colds and were like, I remember someone said, you know, Vicks Vapor Rub? Mm. <laughs> I just I think Paddy was like rubbing that on his chest <laughs> and he was completely congested and his hair was quite long. I said, so Paddy, what's this new album about? And he looked very intense and he ran his fingers through his hair and coughed a bit. And he said, Thomas, it's about Elvis and death. <laughs> Of those uh, four sections to the album, do you have a favourite? A selection. What, favourite songs? <clears throat> well, you've you got the five songs at the beginning, then you've got the Elvis songs, then you've got that song suite, part three, and then you've got the... Yes. The well, song. I mean, so, so here's the thing with Paddy's songs. It's like, I very often, they would ask me if I could do something. I'd say, oh, I'm too, you know, I really haven't got time this year to do anything, I'm busy. And then he'd send me demos, and there'd be one song on the demo that I would just like, i just fall over backwards. I go, I can't not produce this record. And I think it was really two songs from the demos. Cause I mean, he demoed the, um, pretty much the entire album, you know, just on a cassette and sent it to me. And those songs were Wild Horses and Jesse James Bolero. And those two songs, you know, when I heard them, I had to drop whatever I was doing and produce the album. It was just impossible not to. I mean, they're just so wonderful. Through the rails, I spy your ponytail. I tried with sugar cubes and they're okay But I don't think I'll catch you that way I hate myself cause you're so cool With your mocking eyes Won't you look at the old fool things I want to have wild things I want to have wild things I want to And I'll tell you something else. Those are the songs that is demos. I'm not sure if we ever improved on the demos. And, and Paddy doesn't really rate his demo chops. You know, he'll use a couple of synths and drum machines and he'll make a demo in his back room. And people say to him, God, that sounds great. That's, why don't you just release it like that? Oh, no, I couldn't do No, I couldn't do that. And we have to go in the studio with Thomas and record it properly, you know. But the demos for the, those two songs in particular were untouchable. There were marginal improvements and things we did differently in the studio at great length, but I'm not sure if I ever improved those two songs. Jesse was a renegade Danced to his own drum Jesse was a connoisseur 
home cooking tasted stale. Jesse James, Bolero, here's a dance upon the run. Every step proclaims that he's a wayward son. The songs that were worst on, on his demos were the ones that I felt most proud of in some way with my production contribution because they came up all the way, you know, things like Carnival 2000, which the demo was a mess. Tonight, let's raise a glass, my friend, to those who couldn't make it. A century has shut its eyes, and who are we to Later on, more intense ones like uh, Michael or Scarlet Knights, you know, the, the demos didn't really have a direction, a clear direction to them other than, you know, great lyrics and great melody. But instrumentally, arrangement wise, they sort of needed me to find a way forward for them. Scarlet Knights was a demo, wasn't it? As, as, as a demo, it was like a slow song and you kind of, then it's a kind of a rocker at the end of the album, which makes it kind of uplifting <clears throat> as well as kind of sad. So I guess, was that your suggestion to make it faster? Actually, the first arrangement I came up with Scarlet Knights was a sort of hip hop thing, you know, so, oh, wow. which, which Paddy rejected outright. <laughs> um, uh, and then the next thing I came up with was the sort of, you know, that guitar riff, you know, Les Paul sound and to, you know, have it blast out a bit more like, you know, stadium rock sort of U2 or something. Hey, we, we wanted something uplifting, you know, to sort of like something epic to finish the album. Scarlet Knights. This is where your sleepless eyes will close This is where the weary find repose This is where a kinder bugle blows This is where you wake to find the river Jordan flows Scarlet nights waiting, sleep. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, th- there were things that were hit or miss. I mean, Ice Maiden, I think, is amazing. All the World Loves Lovers. Uh, very, just very, almost down-tempo in the feeling of those. The quirkiness of Paris Smith and uh, what's the one before? Oh, the one, the dancing one. Uh, and the Wedding March. The Wedding March and Paris Smith. You know, the, there's just some, you know, some really quirky stuff on that album and machine gun Ibiza, you know, we had a great time recording that album. I mean, it's hilarious. It was seven months in the studio and that was the first year of my marriage. So <laughs> I, married, I married Kathleen and immediately took off to England for seven months to make that. Album. Oh, that's such a great album. Is it true that he gave the demos for let's change the world with music and originally you're going to produce that as well? Yes. And that, there were songs from that era that I loved. I think by that time, there were some cracks appearing in his relationship with his record company because he came out with a set of songs that the record company felt were too Christian. And, you know, I don't know how many of these songs eventually saw the light. There was a song called Ride Home to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it had the word Jesus in the title. But other than that, it could have been about any faith, any era. It was, it was just a wonderful song. But the record company got queasy about it and felt that people would, would a second coming kind of, you know, born again type thing, which is a real shame. And, and I think, you know, Paddy took exception to that and they didn't really get the irony of that period. Some good people will deny anything that they can't see with their own like an exploration you know paddy had been sort of i mean in, in his household it was almost like he was destined for the cloth you know he went to a catholic seminary i think his mum would have been delighted if he'd ended up going that route and he he broke away from that and in his ideology and his belief as well you know he, he had sort of escaped from from that that whole sort of dogma and so i felt that when he did this it was like a it was almost like therapy you know he's digging back into it and finding how he did relate to it and how he didn't. I'm, you know, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. And uh, I've got a feeling Martin probably would not be drawn on this issue at all because it's too mm. close to his heart. But mm. it, this was clearly to me, this was a, this is something that, that Paddy had to go through. And it, it made me furious that the record company, for very superficial reasons, were against it. Oh, people won't like that. Screw you, really. I mean, he was an artist that at that point had earned the right to explore that topic if he wanted to and ironically within five or ten years after that 
<laughs> you know, Christian rock had become such a big deal on the radio that actually, if if you just waited a couple of years, it could have been absolutely massive. <laughs> but it never actually never was never to be. Did you ever come close to producing them again, or was was that the last time? I would have loved to have produced "I Trawl the Megahertz." Uh, interesting, yeah. And that was another that was another situation. I know this was like a Paddy solo record initially, at least. Uh, there's another situation where I was living in California. I was very busy with Beatnik at that point, my tech company. Keith Armstrong said, "Oh, Paddy's got this new thing. We'd love you to produce." And I was like, "Keith, you know, I'm so wrapped up in what I'm doing. I've got absolutely no time." He said, "Well, let me send you the demo, Thomas." And he sent me over a demo of "I Troll the Megahertz" and. I was commuting to work every day <laughs> in Silicon Valley and at nine o'clock in the morning and I had screaming kids at home and so I escaped the kids, got in the sanctuary that was my car, took a deep breath, slapped in Paddy's uh, cassette and by the time I got to like the fifth line about the crippled horses, I couldn't drive anymore. <laughs> it was a major accident because I was blubbing my eyes out. I couldn't see straight and I pulled over to the side of the road in a cloud of dust. And I just sort of slumped on the steering wheel and listened to the whole 20 minutes of it. And I was, it was such an emotional thing. And it was so great to be reconnected with, with Paddy and his music. And I, I just loved that composition. It was just incredible. Uh, so evocative. I am telling myself the story of my life, stranger and song of fiction. We start with the joyful mysteries before the appearance of ether, trying to capture the elusive. The farm where the crippled horses heal, the woods where autumn is reversed, and the longing for bliss in the arms of some beloved from the past. I said, your daddy loves you. I said, your daddy loves you very much. He just doesn't want to live with us anymore. And I would have liked to produce that. I hate to say it, but I would have done a better job. I don't think the mix and the performance were that great we needed to actually find a better actor to do the narration i think instrumentally i think that it could have been improved on as well so i was a bit sad about that but then actually it wasn't just down to i mean it's a great record anyway don't get me wrong it's it's great could have been better could have been better marketed you know it needed a film association with it or it needed a very creative approach to marketing a you know 19 minute piece or 22 minutes whatever however long it is uh it needed to be played by orchestras uh, i yeah. tried very hard to persuade marion Alsop and the baltimore symphony orchestra to play it uh, unfortunately she <laughs> she stepped down shortly after that and it never came to be but maybe one day Number seven, David Bowie. How did you decide to pick the songs in the set that you, that you used tonight? Everything flowed so well, especially, I think, at the end, because it applied so much. And, you know, we could be heroes. We pulled all our own sort of ideas of what would be a nice set. So we started off with, like, ten songs, and we gradually weeded it down to four that really sounded as though they were fairly together after three rehearsals, and there's not much you can do. The main requirement was anything with no more than three chords. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Right, so number seven, we're going to go for David Bowie and Live Aid. Um, you you paint a very evocative picture in the uh, book of flying over Wembley in a helicopter with David Bowie while Queen are playing, which would, like, in the movie of your life, that would be the opening shot, wouldn't it? 
it would definitely feature in there. And and the irony is that I don't know if you saw the Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. movie a couple of yeah. years ago. They recreated that helicopter flight in CGI. <laughs> so so my view as we flew over Wembley Stadium, um, that it was recreated with by a computer, but absent the very irate David Bowie in the foreground, chain smoking with his aura uh, <laughs> pulled down over his head. Uh, but yeah, that was an interesting experience. But when you're like in that situation, do you do you have like an out of body experience thinking this is mad that I'm in a helicopter with David Bowie looking over Wembley Stadium with seventy thousand people listening to Queen? Is it just that's what you're doing right then? Do you know what I mean? Do you actually have that kind of out of body experience at all? I mean, I have to say that on stage playing heroes at Live Aid was an out of body experience. And I mean, partly the reason for that was I'm a person that is, I'm more motivated by fear of falling ass over tit and making a complete idiot of myself. I'm more motivated by the terror of that than I am by the possible glittering reward, if you see what I mean. So it's like, I'm terrified of, of failure. And we had three nights to rehearse with Bowie in, in Nomis Studios, a total of maybe 10 hours to rehearse four songs. And we'd never played together as a band before. He kept changing his mind about what songs to do. You know, he started th- started out thinking he was going to promote his current single, which was Loving the Alien. And then as he got more focused in it, he realized it wasn't about promotion. It was, you know, something it's like a larger goal. So I think that, you know, he only, it was only on the third and last day's rehearsal that he settled on the four songs that he wanted to do. And we never, we played them individually and they sounded okay, but we never played them back to back like a set. And I was convinced I was going to mess it up. And in fact, he, he decided at the last minute to open with TPC 1-5, which is like a honky tonk piano that is not my style at all and it was really a stretch so I sort of opened that set solo Heroes, Heroes is actually a very easy song to screw up because it's got an A and a B section, but they're different lengths. They happen at different times. And I was playing that sort of, you know, that synth riff, which if you come blurting out with that in the middle of a verse and you step on his vocal, that's like a sin, you know, worse than death. You know, I mean, so I was convinced that I was going to screw things up. And I remember being on the stage and just letting myself go and just looking out over the audience and Bowie's back in his blue suit and, uh, you know, the light shining in his golden hair. And just, I was reliving my fanboy youth and I didn't need to know the structure of heroes or when the verses and choruses were coming, my fingers just played themselves. And that was undoubtedly an out of body experience. I'd like to thank and introduce my band who got together so quickly to do this show for me. I'm forever in their debt. 
Lead guitar, Kevin Armstrong. Bass guitar, Matthew Seligman. On percussion, Pedro Ortiz. On drums, Neil Conte. On saxophone, Claire Hurst. And on vocals, Helena and Teresa Smith. And on synthesizers and keyboards, the very brilliant Thomas Dolby. to dedicate this song to my son, to all our children, and to the children of the world. I, I could be king, and you, you could be my queen, for nothing could drive them away. Now we can beat them just for one day. So in terms of knowing the parts to play, did you actually have to listen to the records or was it but you would say, okay, just do this on this song, or how was the process for that? No, I didn't need to listen to the records. The only exception would be that on Modern Love, you could sort of visualize the horn part, but I had to listen to the record to figure out what the voicings, what the individual notes were for the for the horn section. favorite memory of that day or would that be playing heroes i think playing heroes really i mean the whole thing was was a you know was a trip and you know i've dined out in it ever since i mean i i occasionally do a spot in my when i'm playing solo i've got some photos from that day uh that i sort of put together in a slideshow and i i worked out the sort of ambient version of heroes using some samples uh that i got from a documentary about tony visconti <laughs> Because there were some snippets of Bowie's vocal for Heroes when he was in the studio explaining what he did, you know. And so I, t I took samples of those and I made this sort of ambient version. And you can you can see it on YouTube, actually. It's a, it's like a crappy fan video off an iPhone from a gig that I did, but you can look that up on YouTube.
and the side twice. Techno Records breaks another record. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's Thomas Dolby Hyperactive. Thomas Dolby, now $5.99 at Techno Records, where thousands of records are $5.99 every day. Hyperactive, an amazing $5.99 on Capitol Records and high-quality XDR cassettes. Capitol Records, 24 locations, including the South Lakes Village Center, Reston. Side two, Number eight, Joni Mitchell. I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, your, your older fans, are going to be very surprised at the sound of the LP, in fact. It's mostly the rhythm that I think people will find different. Melodically, um... And also the poetry, I guess, because there, there's a song about friendship and a song about love. They kind of bookend the album, and then, then there's a whole Joni's angry, <laughs> a lot of political ranting and raving, you know. Are you a happier person these days? A happier person? No, I'm a very angry person. Because of the occupational hazards surrounding poetry, that is, delving into deep waters... I would be happier if I didn't think so much, but to be a poet requires deep thinking and to become a liberated poet requires even deeper thinking than I have done as yet. Um, perhaps if I thought even deeper, I would be happier. <laughs> so let's go. Well, we number eight, Joni Mitchell. So in 85, two albums came out where you were working with very uh, distinctive original songwriters. Um, one was a more pleasant experience than the other one i think it's fair to say with Joni mitchell was there a moment when you felt it either wasn't going to work or it was kind of going off course a little yeah so i, I was convinced that working with Joni mitchell was going to be great i was such a disciple of her work ranging from the sort of early singer-songwriter period to the very abstract, impressionistic sort of hijira period. And I was delighted when we made the connection and I thought, okay, this is a match made in heaven because every chapter of Joni's career, she had a, a key collaborator that had really influenced and sort of informed that period, like Tom Scott, like Jaco Pastorius, etc., and so I thought, this is this is a natural. We got on pretty well at the start. Um, she was interested in my ideas. We went in the studio, and uh, I'd say that almost as soon as we started working together, it became apparent that we had very different lens lenses on for the music. I had keyboards in the control room, and when I started to arrange stuff, she wanted me to. She wanted to be there while I was, you know, coming up with my parts, mm. and. I tend to, you know, my productions are sort of a collage. You know, I'll often come up with a sound that is just designed for a three or four note melody and then something else is going to go underneath it and there's a, a chord behind it and there's a percussion sound and it's sort of a, a tapestry of different uh, sounds that together makes a texture. Joni is an like her, an accompanist. She plays guitar or piano or mandolin or whatever and she accompanies her vocal. So what would happen would be I'd be programming a sound in let's say my PPG which is designed to just to play a few notes and she'd go oh that's a lovely sound she, can I try and she'd come over and sit in my piano seat and she'd start playing a piano part using that sound that I was programming to just play a couple of notes and she'd say this is great let's record this and this is in the days of 24 track 
recording when you only had limited tracks to work on and I'd sort of say well but if you play a piano part with that sound it's going to mask all the other parts that I came up with oh I don't care just wipe them we'll, we'll replace them with this I'm really into this so it's very impulsive very spontaneous spur of the moment and because of limited tracks it would mean unraveling some of the other work that I'd done so we were sort of slightly at loggerheads like that I mean I was probably spoiled by the fact that in a similar instance with Paddy McAloon for example he had enough trust and patience in me that he would wait to see what I was trying to achieve before he would be judgy about it and in a lot of cases when once it got in place he would get what I was trying to do and sometimes not you know like, like I mentioned that with you know Scarlet Nights where he rejected something and I moved on and did something else and that was fine. With with Joni, she hated the fact that I was taking her time in the studio to piece together this sort of patchwork. And she's a person who, you know, for most of her life has been surrounded by adoring, admiring music business types who would treat her like her genius was untouchable. You know, you're the artist, you do what you need to do, whatever it takes to keep the the genius songs coming you shall have whatever your heart desires and um on a certain level they're right i mean it, you know it's her career her brand her songs her instinct that something is right or wrong and if it wasn't working with me she was absolutely in the right to sort of say okay let's nip this in the bud we're not seeing eye to eye you know let's move on so i have no sort of lingering resentment over that really it, it didn't work out and it just wasn't uh, a match made in heaven after all having said that I think there were some other circumstances I mean you know a lot of my stuff has made it onto the album I was going to say she you, was, you can hear that it's a Thomas Dolby production it, it, no it's not it's not a Thomas Dolby production I mean number one there were four okay, producers there's so, Thomas Dolby sounds there it, it, you can there's connective tissue there even if it's not your yeah, producer there are sounds in there but I mean really I was a, a session keyboardist uh, on that album uh, a, a, among other musicians and she just took pieces of what I did and that she liked and, and rejected the ones she didn't like it's not my production and and steer, you know production means steering the songs in a certain direction and um i was not i was not responsible for that you know i was i was just a bit player at the end of the day there a track on that is the nearest to what you would have envisioned it would have been if you had produced it I like, like, listened to like the three great stimulants and I think uh, I haven't listened to it in a long time to be I honest I was going to ask you when I mean, you it's like so, so the experience ended up getting very very bad and for years and years I couldn't listen to her music at all it sort of right. soured the well for me which is which is a real shame because you know she's one of the most influential artists of my of my youth without a question 
So I couldn't listen to it. And, and it ended up being quite bitter. Um, she was going through some hard times. She had a bad car accident. A manager ripped her off and did a runner with, with her money. She was recently married to Larry Klein. And he also was learning the Fairlight and, you know, wanted to sort of figure out what I was doing and so that they wouldn't need me next time kind of thing. And uh, Mike Shipley was the engineer who I'd worked with on Def Leppard and Foreigner. He, he was a, he, he's no longer with us. He was a great guy, brilliant engineer, but very much a yes man. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people were kowtowing to Joni and I was the outsider. And so I got what I deserved, really. Uh, but it, it left a very bitter taste because she's a very vindictive person and um, she can be a real harpy. And she sort of destroyed me. You know, she's, she's like irresistible when she's talking. I mean, she can, she can crack you up. She can keep you enthralled for hours <laughs> when she was writing the blue album. I mean, she's an amazing person, but she can absolutely destroy you when she wants to. And she did that to me emotionally. And it was, un, it was uncalled for really. You know, it just, it just didn't work out and she didn't have to, she didn't have to destroy me. <laughs> when you say she destroyed you, in what sense did she destroy you? What do you mean by that? Well, so the album came out, it was not very well received, and she very quickly pinned the blame on me. Mm. She said, the record company foisted him on me. I didn't really want him. He tried to interior decorate me out of my own house. If you don't like the album, it's Thomas's fault. <laughs> it's basically what she said. And, and you know, I mean, this, you know, over the years, uh, she's probably forgotten all about this by now, but, you know, she she is a person who f was never satisfied with relative lack of commercial success. I mean, I, I think she had plenty of commercial success, but people that love Joni don't care about where she charted or how many mm. records she sold. Ask any female songwriter from the last 30 years, they will say she was absolutely the front runner. She was so influential. She really set the bar high for our whole genre, you know, for decades. And when you hear Joni bitching about how Bob Dylan, you know, sold more records than her when he can hardly sing and he stole his songs from Woody Guthrie or whatever, it's like, forget it. It's like, it, absolutely not the point. She stands, her music is amazing. It stands on its own. And um, she doesn't need to assassinate anybody around her in order to prove how great she is. So that's where I stand. That's actually the most forthcoming I've ever been <laughs> on okay, record. So you, you have said on you have it is on record saying that it's a scar that's never healed. So I'm I'm sorry to 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 pick at that scar, but I think people find uh, that okay. yeah. You also both worked on um, Roger Waters' production of The Wall in Berlin. Did you bump yeah. into it at any point of that during that show? Yes, I'm afraid I did, and that that was also. <laughs> That's really the sort of footnote to the story. So, I mean, there's a cast of thousands assembled to do Roger Waters' uh, The Wall in Berlin. And Joni was there. Van Morrison was there. The band were there. The Scorpions, um, Sinead O'Connor, Uta Lempa, Tim Curry, all these amazing people assembled there, along with the Red Army Choir and, you know, motorcycle gangs and fleets of limos and pyrotechnics and and putting this all together as a one night stand on a former bomb site in no man's land in berlin you know, with, with nazi tunnels caving in and unexploded ordinances underneath oh, it was complete and utter chaos and it all had to go out live on satellite tv you know but before satellite tv was really ready for it so it was a foolhardy event um it's amazing it sort of came off as well as it did 
But anyway, so yes, I did bump into Joni Mitchell there. And it was the first time I'd seen her since we had a big falling out. You know, we fell out at the end of her album because we were talking earlier about musicians getting songwriting credits because I'd been involved in making the backing track for one of the songs on the album. Joni had said to me, I love that Marvin Gaye song, Trouble Man. Can you come up with something like that? And so I went home and I came up with a groove and a chord sequence that were, you know, reminiscent of Trouble Man. And she took my tape home and wrote a melody and lyrics over the top of it. It was called, I think I'm a, I'm a lucky girl, something like that. And I foolishly assumed that there would be some kind of minor songwriting credit. When I asked for this, she absolutely had a meltdown. And that's when she ripped me a new um, derriere and insulted me best she possibly could. Not only what I'd done there, but also she started insulting my songs. You know, she said, you'll never be a great songwriter because you're too much of a wimp, Dolby, she said. Um, oh. You know, she, I mean, she had picked me to co-produce her album because she loved she said that she loved some of my music, that she loved Prefer Sprout production. And mm. I was not the record company's choice. I was her choice alone. And uh, it didn't work out. And we should have just both moved on. I'm a lucky girl. Anyway, so cut to Berlin in 1989, and it's the first time we'd seen each other, and we had a big row that was, you know, when they were waiting for me on stage to practice my song, and finally I got on stage and had to practice my synth solo, you know, in another brick in the wall, and I could feel Joni's eyes staring at a laser hole in the back of my cranium, and I kept my back to the front of the stage and tried to make my way through this solo, which I completely messed up. Um, so that, yeah, that was the last time. I mean, enough pressure, isn't it? Performing the, the solo to another brick in the wall at the Berlin Wall without Joni Mitchell giving you eagles. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, I swear that she had lasers for eyes. That <laughs> Did she instigate the row there? What was, what, what does you expect when there's a bit of edge there that the two people just like ignore each other or just, you know, cold shoulder each other, but not actually engage? Well, I remember with great embarrassment that poor Cindy Lauper was trying to get my attention because we were going to sort of duet on stage and she wanted to figure out what we we're going to do. And I was too, I was like, you know, brow to brow with Joni <laughs> arguing about something that happened five years earlier.
okay, let's move on to something more positive. Uh, There's a counterpoint to what Joni Mitchell said about you inter- interior de- decorating her out of her songs. Um, there's a lovely quote from uh, Paddy McAloon where he references that and says, you probably won't want me to bring this up, but he also says that he t- you turned his songs into little palaces, which I thought was a beautiful phrase. So that's Oh, a- I never read that or heard that. Yeah. That's- and that's perfect, really. It's just the perfect coda to the whole Joni Mitchell. Exactly. So there's this accentuate the positive. Number nine, film work. Thomas, I'm so glad you had that shirt on because now we get a close up, as much as we're going to get, unless people go see the movie, mm-hmm. of Howard the Duck. Did you actually see any of Howard the Duck before you started doing the music? I mean, as far as the little figure. Yeah, I actually came in right from the beginning of shooting. Um, I, I was They built me a little studio up at, up at Lucas and um, I worked around uh, the production, came down to the set a lot and, um, and I, I thought right from the beginning that he was, he was great. You know, I'd actually been a fan of the comic book. I, I thought that Howard was great. I thought he had a great personality, like a cross between Groucho Marx and the Fonz. <laughs> the Fonz, yeah. I love it. <laughs> so number nine is the film work you did. So um, your first score was for a Ryan O'Neill film called Fever Pitch. Mm-hmm. So they always say it's the hardest thing to get into is film scoring. And so how did you get that first break? Yeah, um, actually, oddly enough, it was also the Michael Jackson connection because Quincy Jones was obviously working very closely with Michael at the time. And Quincy had just started producing films. He was a co-producer on Fever Pitch. And it was him that recommended me to the director, Richard Brooks, as a composer. It was sort of a low-budget movie. They wanted something a little bit quirky and different. And they approached me about it. And I came up with this idea of sampling sounds. So it's it's a it's a movie about a gambling addict who sort of runs into a lot of debt in Las Vegas. I came up with this idea of sampling casino sounds and making them into a soundtrack, like with the Fairlight. And... Um, they liked that idea and uh, they gave me my break, you know, and um, I, I was I was pretty young at the time. Flew out to L.A. and I was working on the Fox studio lot in West L.A. and uh, absolutely loving it, you know, eating in the commissary opposite A-list stars and directors and things. And it was sort of like a like a fantasy of the guy, young guy that, you know, goes to be in the movies. And uh, I had a great time. Gambling. It's done all over the world, and it's been around a long time. You say raised? Fever pitch. High rollers. In the next hour, he could win or lose a million dollars. Big losers. The next year, it led to Howard the Duck, which at the time must have seemed like a really massive break, working on George Lucas's next project. <laughs> well, it's great to have the association with, with George Lucas. Yeah, certainly, you know, on paper, it looked like a great project. And I'd seen the comics and enjoyed the comics and um, so on. It, it went off the rails and cost way too much money and, uh, you know, too many cooks and so on. And I quit or was fired from writing the score and ended up just doing the songs there's an all-female band in in the movie fronted by leah thompson who you know from back to the future and so on and um who's a good singer by the way and um they wanted me to train the band to look like a band and and to write the you know four songs for them uh so i i spent probably six months of that year in marine county at lucas skywalker ranch and so on and george wasn't really involved and i think that's part of the problem actually george was sort of out of it but uh it was a fun project to do and i'm proud of the songs that i wrote i think the songs are great and the song performances but the the movie was quite iffy really Um, (laughs) 
become a bit of a cult over the years. And I hear how it is now possibly going to make a comeback because he's shown up in the end credits of a couple of Marvel DC. Yes, didn't he? Yes, yes. So how much of the score had you written? And did you ever reuse that for anything else? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd written... Um, actually, yeah. So my next score was Gothic. And um, some of the cues from Gothic actually started life as Howard the Duck, which were clearly way too edgy for you know, for an A-list Hollywood movie at that point. But uh, Gothic was a sort of art house horror film uh, directed by the infamous Ken Russell about the night that uh, Frankenstein was conceived by Mary Shelley and about Byron and Shelley and this sort of, uh, you know, orgiastic drug-fueled night that they they spent by Lake Geneva. And um, yeah, on that, I got pretty much a free hand. Uh, You know, I got to do sort of orchestral sounding cues with the Fairlight that then... You know, were played by a real orchestra. It's my first experience working with a real orchestra, and uh, that was a thrill. that in a second but going back to Howard the Duck you mentioned the songs you wrote which are they are good songs actually Howard the Duck sounds very Prince like is that a fair the actual title track is that a fair comparison yeah I mean I think the groove sounds a bit like Let's Go Crazy or something like yes, that yes uh, and then there's like a synth part that is that is quite definitely quite Prince like yeah Um, and Don't Turn Away is a lovely song. It's got Stevie Wonder on it. So did you get him after the uh, Grammys synth-off with uh, him, Herbie Hancock and uh, Howard Jones? You know, he's. I've stayed in contact with him over the years and he's always been very friendly. Um, he loves to play and sing. Uh, he's not precious about, you know, guesting with people. We did it at his studio. I mean, he didn't charge me to do it. And, you know, it's like from when I started writing that song with Ali... We thought, ooh, Stevie Wonder on harmonica would really make this. You 
a lovely song. And you go back to Gothic. So the first time you hear an orchestra play something you've written, that must be a, one of those magical moments. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fantastic. It's like walking on air, you know, when you hear music played by an orchestra. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not classically trained and I can't really read an orchestral at that time. I, I, didn't, I was clueless about reading an orchestral score. I'm too, slightly better with it now. But uh, yeah, I mean, we recorded at Angel Studios in, in, uh, in London. Unfortunately, I had a deal where I was paying the orchestra <laughs> by the hour, which is very pricey. So <laughs> it was simultaneously a wonderful experience because I was hearing my music, you know, performed by real musicians with all these thousands of years of training. But it was also very painful because there were mistakes. And every time I stopped them to fix a mistake, you know, I, I, I had to walk around and, you know, look over their shoulders as they penciled in the changes to their scores. And, I, you know, I wasn't able to describe in terms that they understood what was wrong with it so we, we got very behind and um you know we didn't get all of the pieces recorded so uh some of the pieces that ended up in the movie are my original fairlight mock-ups you know for the cues rather than the orchestral versions oh, okay. only in your late 20s that's a very young age to be writing a score yeah you feel yeah was it something exciting to you or was there like did you feel intimidated by the idea of having to do that um it was very exciting and i, and I think you know looking back and especially now that you know i'm i'm coaching young musicians myself it's like i would never say to them you can expect by the age of 26 to be you know having your music performed in a major movie by the london symphony orchestra <laughs> That's an unrealistic expectation. <laughs> I sort of got the back door in, I guess, because I was, you know, a pop rock artist that crossed over. And actually a lot of the, you know, in the last 20 years or so, a lot of the most successful Hollywood composers have been people like, you know, Hans Zimmer, Trent Reznor, Danny Elfman, et cetera, who have crossed over, you know, from the, the rock world. But with my students, their way into it would be rung by rung up the Hollywood ladder, you know, working as copyists, working as orchestrators, working as uh, composers, assistants, eventually getting a credit and eventually getting hired on their own on some sort of art house B movie. But it's very seldom that somebody just gets to slot right in, you know, as a, as a Hollywood film composer. So I was very fortunate. And in retrospect, it was probably too much too soon. You know, if I'd served a proper apprenticeship, I think I would have been uh, less of a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you felt well i mean i think it's an amazing soundtrack and i think one thing that's amazing about it was that you know i did it without the benefit of all of the huge orchestral sample libraries that you have today I mean, if you have a laptop today mm. and thousand quid you can make a sound like the london symphony you need talent of course you know but i mean the sound of the sample libraries you can do on a computer now are just absolutely fantastic and i didn't have any of that i just had a few sort of very very simplistic orchestral sounds and the ability to sample you know a blast here a single note there off off cds basically my classical cd collection i sampled the whole thing in tiny increments and i pieced together an orchestral score out of those tiny fragments
but it sounds really good. Um, did Ken Russell know who you were? No, I don't think so. I mean, the, the, the film was produced by Virgin. They were just starting to produce films. And um, so I think that, you know, that, that was how the introduction came about. I, he, he, you know, he was a, he's a very learned man and he probably did his homework and for the most part, he was he was happy with what I did. Yeah. Was it Virgin's idea for you to release the uh, the single "The Devil Is an Englishman"? Yeah, it's probably my idea actually. I mean, so um, Timothy Spall was one of the actors in the film, and uh, he and I got on, and we sort of floated this idea um, of doing. I think actually, um, I probably asked. Oh, remind me of the name of the actor that played Byron in that film. They'll look it up on IMDb. Gabriel Byrne. Uh, yeah, thank you, Gabriel Byrne. Yeah, I think I probably so he was playing Lord Byron in the film, and I think I may have asked him to do it first, and he wasn't available. He was doing something else, and Timothy Spall jumped in and did it, and he does a great job, you know, on the narration on the on the voice for that song. an ad in the recycler in LA, just, just right between used refrigerators and second-hand cars. Well, listen, darling, now this song is about a friend of yours, Airhead. What does she feel about the song? Is she happy? Well, I think she knows who she is, but the main thing is just to laugh at it, you know. So, if you can dish it out, can you take it? If you wrote a song about you, what would you call yourself? Oh, the last thing I want to do is take myself seriously. I think I'd probably call it Bonehead. Bonehead, that sounds like fun, darling. All right, so, number 10, uh, Aliens Ate My Buick. So your last album of the 80s. What you said about the comparisons of Previous Sprout is really fascinating and it kind of makes sense. But did you have a design brief yourself for the album before you make it? And do you generally, when you make an album, think, this is my approach to this album? Or is it just a case of just writing the songs and then putting it together? Um, I was pretty much on holiday in Los Angeles. And, you know, early on in my life, I was very... Uh, the idea of Los Angeles really didn't appeal to me. My first few visits there on tour, I didn't take to the place at all. It's got no sort of, no focus, no center. It's all about cars. You can't walk anywhere. You get arrested if you try and walk anywhere. And, and you know, when I first went there in the 70s, the air was unbreathable. Uh, the water was undrinkable. And it just seemed to be a very shallow place, you know, filled with wannabes uh, that end up, bussing tables, you know, in a restaurant. I was very against it. And then I went back there in the 80s and I sort of saw it from a different angle. I saw it as a bit of a cultural anomaly, really. And I started to warm to what what made LA so obscenely other and in a sort of cultish way. And and I think, you know, pop culture basically is the, is the story of that, of that experience. If you listen to that song, it sort of, that really catches it. 
person that goes abroad you have this ability to sort of rewrite your life script you know you, you might be a shy english person from a you know academic middle class background you go to los angeles and you have the ability to reinvent yourself and so i lived up in the hollywood hills by the hollywood sign i drove a convertible pink mustang i went out clubbing i had lots of girlfriends in succession I'd sort of finally embraced my celebrity status and I used that as a way to get good tables in restaurants and to get to the front of a line, you know, get under the velvet rope. But I felt like a vacation. It felt like I was just going to take some time off. Um, and in fact, my accountant said to me, you know, there'd be certain tax benefits if you were to spend a year out of the country. <laughs> they catch up with you in the end, by the way, you know, so I paid my dues, overpaid my dues in time. But, um, at the time there was an, a neat little tax break. So I was on holiday in Los Angeles. Aliens at my beer was really a postcard home, you know, from. Los Angeles. It's like, Hey mum, look at me. I'm, I'm, you know, halfway up the Hollywood sign kind of thing. And so it was, it was very sort of, you know, balls to the wall, you know, driving a Ferrari up the one on one, one one. It was, uh, you know, and, and it touched on things that today are very, uh, sort of politically incorrect. Like, you know, Ed was the part of the eighties excess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, pr- possibly not aged very well, but I was having a great time. songs for, from Langley Park to Memphis. So I think that you can also hear that attitude in things like um, uh, The King of Rock and Roll. Yeah, yeah. Against the connected tissue between the two, there is you can, you can hear it between the two of them. Yeah, and then I think just, the, just holding up a mirror to that was Budapest by Blimp, which is a very sort of reflective song of looking back at Europe through that lens and thinking, in America they're so in awe of the splendor of Europe and the 
antiquities and the way the boulevards and avenues are laid out and the statues and the glitter and the architecture and the, the rest of it. And I, and I just sort of thought, well, actually, you're overlooking the fact that that was built on the on the toils of, you know, the underlings that <laughs> served the empire. You know, so hence, hence the lyrics in Budapest by Blimp about, you know, Built on the ashes of the Jews, signed in the blood of Zulus. You know, it's it's very it's very bittersweet look back at Europe through the American lens. thinking about it it's almost like an inverse proportion to the first two albums we've got these two kind of more kind of serious albums with these kind of kind of quirky hits attached to it and you've got a kind of quirky album with this very serious song attached to it at the end yeah i've often thought you could swap hyperactive with budapest by blimp and you'd end up with two albums that were a lot more coherent yes. in a some way but um you know i'm, I'm always a bit contrary <laughs> I was always going to talk about Budapest by Blimp because I think I've mentioned it on email a few times. That I think it's your masterpiece. I think it's an absolutely brilliant song and a brilliant production. It's like every decision you've made on that song as a songwriter and a producer, you've absolutely nailed. I think an example is the three vocals that come in at different points. Mm-hmm. There's like the opera one's the first one. The second one, I don't know what you just, the female singers, would you say it's kind of like Gaelic singing or something? I mean, how She's singing you... Hungarian, actually. Hungarian, okay, right. <laughs> then you've got the, um, kind of the, the kind of choir chant at the end. So um, in terms of the arrangement for that song, how did that come to you? The idea of like like having those three different vocal parts? Well, actually, the song started off from the groove from The Devil is an Englishman, which I'd come up with. I I had a little Casio box that had a programmable drum machine in it. And I I came up with that groove on an airplane on headphones. And when I came to record the song, um, I thought, well, when I do it with, the, with you know, in the studio, I'll, I'll do it properly with the Fairlight and so on. So 
First, I tried to replicate it with the Fairlight. Didn't sound right. Next, I sort of thought, okay, I'll sample the individual sounds off the Casio, sequence them in the Fairlight. Still didn't sound right. I thought, okay, I'll use the Casio, but I'll use a DI box and plug that directly into the tape recorder. Still didn't sound right. In the end, I hung a microphone over a little crappy little speaker in the Casio and recorded it with the microphone. And that's what you hear on the album for nine minutes or whatever, however long it is. So it was a groove, uh, you know, just a bass and, and drum groove. And I started just improvising chords over the top of it and came up with that sort of basic sequence. And it was played on the PPG, which is a very belly, furry kind of um, kind of synth with a very unique sound. Probably came up with a, a B section from there that sounded a bit different and and a melody. And it, it always felt a bit like a sort of cabaret song to me in that in that vocal, but very early locked into this idea of singing about American things like, you know, the boulevard and the avenue, but as if I was singing about European boulevards and avenues and so on. And and this sort of memory, almost like an exile, could have been written from the point of view of an exile that, you know, exiled from Europe in the 30s and ended up in the USA looking back with nostalgia at the old country. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty much the way it came up. Uh, I routined it with the band, uh, Lost Toy People. We played it live in clubs before we ever went in the studio with it. So all of the songs from Aliens Ate My Buick had been played live over and over. And so they have a sort of lived in feeling about them. When we went in the studio, it was basically we played our live set start to finish and then I replaced certain things, certain vocals, did a few overdubs and and that was it. It was of course used as well. I just recently discovered in the film Rockula, which you starred in, there's a montage sequence that is three and a half minutes of it and it, it, it works really well the visuals actually Mona! I haven't seen that movie for ages either. Another cult film. <laughs> but was that was that actually you'd already written the song and they decided to use it, or was that partly to Yeah, be- I'd already written the song and they had they had no budget, so they just sort of said, you know, <laughs> would I give them a gratis license to the to the song? And so I decided to, yeah. It works really well. Another song I really love is My Brain is Like a Sieve, which again, the arrangement of it and the production and your vocal as well, it's a great vocal on it. Um, anything you remember about the writing and recording of that one? Um, not really. I mean, so uh, I think probably when it started out, I was I was consciously looking for a sort of soft reggae, sort of lover's rock kind of style to it. And it ended up having a flavour of that, but sort of going its, its own route. To be ashamed of your behavior when you're treating me this way, as if I had deserved be a place to vent your eyes. Someday I'm gonna douse that bonfire. We make a crucial team for a dying world, and style is a word I never even heard in your. 
I don't really remember very much about it, but uh, I always, you know, when I first came up with the title and the hook, I always saw it as a potential single. I was, I was a bit sad. I mean, that would be one instance on that album where I didn't think the single choices were really the right ones. In some ways, I think the key to her Ferrari should have been the first single from the album and it could have been a breakthrough hit. But I think the record company were resistant to that because it had this sort of big band jazz feel mm. and they didn't see how that was going to get played on the radio. I don't need no drugs. I don't need no liquor. Saying all I want is the Katie of Ferrari. Your rubber lips, huh, your perfect figure. <laughs> But there, you know, it's high stakes. I mean, if that song had broken through and got played on the radio, it would have been unmistakable you know because it's so different from anything else that was happening at the time and uh maybe that could have worked uh but they sort of felt that a you know more natural choice was to go with things like airhead and hot sauce that were you know seemed more compatible with what radio was playing at the time yeah more commercial but, i mean I, I think in my dreams the key to her ferrari would have been a top five hit followed up <laughs> by um, barbarians like a sieve and then budapest by blimp at the eight minutes Top three single, yeah. Yeah, that would, well, I guess if American, if American Pie can do it then. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had the hair, the Airhead single when it came out, and that's how I remembered Budapest by Blimp, because it was the B-side, but it was an edited version, which I believe you edited yourself, is that correct, the single? I don't, again, I don't remember anything about that. I have to go back and listen to that. I mean, I certainly would have edited it myself, but I don't I don't remember what I did. Well, that's the 10 things. So um, anything you think I've missed from your 80s, you think needs to be uh, acknowledged? you're particularly proud of uh, i think we're more or less there actually um yeah i mean we've sort of covered the whole decade i think you know by the end i was feeling pretty disillusioned with the whole music business and i was feeling much more attracted to the tech world silicon valley games interactivity software etc so i think it you know it, it pretty much wraps up the decade quite nicely yeah now at least to, to this part two of your autobiography for people to read Oh, and one more question. Why isn't Map of the Floating City on uh, streaming services? What did you say? Why it isn't it? Yeah. Oh, um, it, it, you know, it, it didn't come out on a major label. And probably the responsibility for that is with me. I just haven't sort of kept it up. So I probably ought to revisit that and get it out there. But, you know, I feel that the Map of the Floating City was somewhat overlooked. I'm very proud of it as an album. You know, I think it's, it's some of my best work and it deserves another shot at commercial success but maybe it would have to be precipitated by some some other event at this point and maybe it would be rediscovered like a reissue um, program or something of all your yeah so, so on a certain level there's, there's no harm in disappearing from the public eye for a while so that people have a break so i don't know maybe in my dreams one day it'll 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 get rediscovered 
it had almost no outside help at all and the context of it you know I feel it's slightly lost in the sands of time and so it deserves another another crack of the whip Hippocratic oath Apathy on toast Psilocybin nut roast Nut roast Nut roast Panic on the seas Mozzarella cheese Diplomatic deep freeze Deep freeze Deep freeze Stuck for a line You grovel for a rhyme God, it's nearly vocal time Quick fire mound. So your your biggest diva moment in the eighties. Ooh, uh, yeah, my biggest diva moment of the eighties. Uh, I think um, around about the time of Hyperactive, uh, I lost sight of the fact that um, the credit for the video really deserves to go to a guy called Danny Kleinman, who's a very brilliant um, uh, film and uh, commercial director. Uh, he's responsible for creating most of the James Bond graphics um, over the years. Uh, he's a very brilliant artist, and um, uh, he directed that video. I, obviously, I had a lot of input to it, storyboarding it with him. A lot of the ideas were mine. But um, I think doing interviews right after that, I made it sound like I had <laughs> directed the video myself, and I was rightly had my wrist slapped by um, uh, by by the producer of the of the video. Um, so I think that's probably my biggest diva moment. But you know, I'm not I'm not an egocentric person, I don't think. And and you know, I hate the idea that people feel I'm being egocentric, and so I was very ashamed of myself after that. Oh, okay. If you hear your music on the radio now, do you turn it up, turn it off, or ignore it? If I hear my music on the radio, I definitely turn it up. I mean, it's a rare thing. I don't listen to the radio much. Uh, it's like a celebration. Um, I'm not in my car much. I don't listen to the radio at home. If I happened to be, you know, just driving around and one of my songs came on, I would probably turn it up and, and you know, and celebrate. Excellent. Is that a question I've always wanted to ask an 80s pop star, okay? So when it comes to sex, drugs and rock and roll in the 80s, do you think you got the ratio right? <laughs> That's a very funny question. Um, do you mean for maximum pleasure? whatever your interpretation of that question is, that's kind of why I asked the question. Depends on how you hear the question. Well, I think that, um, you know, sex is ultimately harmless. Uh, in the 80s, maybe not. And maybe we paid a penalty for that. Um, and there's a generation of people that are no longer with us that sort of paid that penalty. But I think generally speaking, um, you know, sex is a good thing. Um <laughs> Rock and roll generally a good thing, although my hearing, my audiologist might not agree. Uh, I think my hearing is probably better than many musicians my age because, you know, I didn't, I didn't have big Marshall guitar stacks and 
drummers in my ear and things like that. So I hear okay, but it's not great. Uh, as far as drugs, nah, sort of dabbled, you know, but I was never a serious user and um, never, I'm not a, a compulsive person. So I don't think I was ever really in danger of becoming too dependent or anything like that. I experimented a bit like everybody else. And then I did way less in the nineties and noughties than a lot of ravers around. Um, mm. I wasn't particularly interested in, in, in that. So did I get the proportion right? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I lots of sex, which, uh, you know, I'm still perfectly happy about. Um, I don't think I did enough drugs to really harm me. And uh, aside from slight upper range hearing loss, mm. uh, I, I have no regrets about the rock and roll either. Makes sense. The answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Final four questions I always end on. Um, your biggest professional disappointment of the 80s? Ah, my biggest disappointment of the 80s professionally had to be that it didn't work out with Joni Mitchell. You know, I was just so in love with her music when I was younger and it just seemed like a match made in heaven. Uh, but um, it didn't work out that way. And that was a big disappointment. Sorry for bringing that up again. Picking up that scab one more time. Um, best professional moment of the 80s? Focus on the positive. I think probably the best professional moment of the 80s. Uh, it would be a toss up between having a, you know, top five single myself um versus standing on stage at Wembley behind David Bowie playing heroes the eternal jukebox okay I have a thing called the eternal jukebox where all your music that you made in the 80s were involved with is wiped but you can keep three tracks so which three tracks of yours of the 80s would you keep uh I would keep one of our submarines Budapest by Blimp and I love you goodbye I love you. Goodbye. Is that from the nineties? Oh yeah. Okay. So I have to take that out. Yeah. All right. Uh, screen kiss. And I can trace my mystery down one generation to my home in one of our submarines. Screen kiss. One screen kiss. Straight from a film. I forget who is it. If you hadn't have included Budapest by Blimp, I'd include it as a fourth choice for you, okay? So well done. And three words to describe your 80s. Ooh, three words. Daring, chaotic, hmm. and busy. That is the end of the Thomas Dolby interview. Hope you enjoyed Bye. Oh, so huge thanks to Thomas for, for a fascinating interview. I think part two which is this episode uh, it's one of the best episodes I've done I've um, it's massively enjoyable to edit sometimes editing feels like pushing a rock up the hill like it's such an effort sometimes and um, there's one coming up I'm dreading doing because there's going to be a lot of work on it but this was just really fun actually uh, there's all the stuff on Prefab Sprout I could have talked to him for hours about Prefab Sprout and there's one question I wish I had asked was was um, whether Paddy's songwriting had informed his own songwriting in any way but you can check out more on, on Proof of Sprout with the Steve McQueen audio commentary episode Thomas did with Wendy Ann Martin of Proof of Sprout which is uh, really good really good that was the fascinating stuff about Joni Mitchell I mean this is the interviewer's dichotomy you're covering a subject 
that is painful to the interviewee. And you don't want it to be unpleasant for the guest, but at the same time, this is often where the gold, the really interesting stuff is. And for him to say that's the most I've ever talked about that, that's, that's kind of the interviewer's dream. So I appreciate Thomas being so honest and forthright about that. I actually like Doggy Dog. I know he feels like he didn't co-produce it, but I like his contributions to songs like Fiction and uh, The Great Three Great Stimulants. I think he does there's some good stuff there. And I hope he does get Map of the Floating City under streaming services. It's a really good LP. It should be there. Um, includes 17 Hills with Mark Knopfler, which you can hear underneath me right now. And here, oh, Heroes, this version of Heroes, um, which you mentioned, which I think is really good. You should definitely get that recorded and put out there. Maybe as a bonus track when he finally gets uh, Floating City on streaming. And in my notes, when I was writing up Heroes twice, because P is close to O on the QWERTY keyboard, twice I wrote Heroes as Herpes. Hmm. We could have Herpes just for one day. It's a very different song. It's a shame he never worked with David in the studio. I'd love to have heard Never Let Me Down, produced by Thomas Dolby. I've been a very different and clearly much better LP. I like the title track, though. That's great. Brilliantly talented guy. Stick a pin in anything he's done in the 80s and beyond, and you'll find something interesting. And I really love another thing. I really love the Howard the Duck songs. I'm glad he didn't dismiss them because the film was a flop, and he likes them as well. I think they're really good songs. Yeah. So anyway, thomasdolby.com, and he's available on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And lots of thanks again to Thomas for the interview. Also check out his autobiography, The Speed of Sound, and he does the audiobook for it too. And many thanks to listeners JNU Burr and Tobias Newman for their very generous contributions to keeping itisography ticking. Uh, the latter's eternal jukebox choices are the great curve, Talking Heads. It's only the rhythm, Grace Jones, a very interesting choice from the slate of the rhythm LP. And welcome to the Pleasure Dome, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, the LP version, the 13 and a half minute LP version, of course. Great. And if the former would like to email me their three choices, I'll give them a shout out next time. As can you too, dear listener, if you to contribute, then uh, it's PayPal, it is over at gmail.com. Appreciate all that have. Or you can complain as well with that email address. Uh, we've got a one star review on uh, Apple Music from an Australian listener complaining that I mumble and talk too fast, which I say to them, Go fuck yourself. Thank you. <laughs> Something that's very, um, uh, very self-conscious about issues with speech all my life. Uh, it stuttered when I was a kid. And when I started the podcast, it was just me going through an artist track by track. So it's fine. I could do as many like this. I can, I can do this as many times and edit as many times as I want. Um, but doing interviews is really, especially at the beginning, was very stressful. I still, I still, I still dread doing interviews for that reason. I remember early on having one with Stephen Lipson, the producer. And I was putting one of the kids to bed at like 6.30 and I got a text from him saying, oh, I'm sorry, mate, I can't do it, I've got work tonight. And I should have been like, oh my God, I've been doing hours time. I should have been annoyed, but instead I was so relieved. So that's another week I haven't got to do an interview. Yes, great. So I do apologise if, if I'm not clear. I'm apologising to you, dear listener, not to this Australian person for giving me a one-star review. That's just mean. That just makes it harder for me to reach people. So no, both to them. I'm Australian, mate. I've only got a vocabulary of 120 words. You know, help me out here, mate. You know what I mean? Struggle at the best of times. That's a joke to all my Australian listeners. I love you. You know that. Uh, so to finish, let's get out of here quick. So I can headbutt the wall for an hour. Um, I mentioned My Brain Is Like a Sieve, one of my favourite Thomas Dolby tracks. And very apt. I can relate. I, I'm at that age now where I'll walk into a room and forget why I'm there. Or I'll forget what song I've just listened to. I had a day where I was... I walked from one side of the island unit to the other side 
but by the time I got to the other side, I'd forgotten why I'd walked around. And I was staring. I'd opened the fridge door and was staring there for 10 seconds before I realised I was looking for the rice cooker, which was in the cupboard next to it. And it comes to a saw in the end. There's no escaping this. But it's a great song. And this is a live version with the jazz mafia horns. And this is rather lovely. So uh, until next time, hopefully we'll meet again. And uh, enjoy and goodbye. Mate. My brain is like a sieve Sometimes it's easy to forget All the bad things you did to me You did to me Oh, my brain is like a sieve But it knows when it's being messed with Yeah, if you wanted, you could come in Suck up me when you said you loved me When you told me you cared That you would be a part of me mm, That you would always be there did you really mean to hurt me? Now, I think you only meant to tease But it's hard to remember I lost my memory See, my brain is like a sieve Sometimes it's easy to forget All the bad things you did to me It's like a sin But it knows when it's being messed with Yeah, if you want it You could come in So come in Yeah, yeah,
It's not an easy thing to be a West Ham fan. Around here, people support, well, it's like, I used to support United, but now I support City. Yeah, yeah what a surprise, yeah. But actually, there's, in, in Fells Point, where I live in Baltimore, there's, it's like, there's a lot of bars in this area. And a lot of the bars have a, a soccer team, a football team. And, you know, there's Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal. Amazingly, there is a great burger bar that is a West Ham bar. And so I can walk down there from where I am and I walk in and all these guys are going, yay, come on, you irons. And I walk in, they're all wearing <laughs> scarves and all the gear and everything. And every time we score, which doesn't happen very often, but when we do score, they having done a few shots, they blurt out, I'm forever blowing bubbles at the top of their voices. That doesn't sound right with an American accent, does it? I just doesn't, doesn't sound right. good. No. And, and I, have to, I have to stand up on my bar stool and go, listen, you wankers. <laughs> We're not letting you in the East End of London unless you sing it right. <laughs> We make a crucial team for a dying world. Number 10, Aliens Ate My Buick. <laughs> <laughs>